and welcome to Benjamin Man McKay's Talk To Me. I'm your host, Benjamin, and today on the show I'll be talking to TV host and comedian Adam Hills. Then, thanks to Palace Nova Cinemas, I'll be reviewing the latest movie releases. And finally, thanks to Roadshow Entertainment, I'll be reviewing their latest DVD releases. But first, here's my chat with comedian and TV presenter Adam Hills. Enjoy. Now, my guest today on the podcast is currently holding a record for the longest time ever to get from agreement to interview. <laughs> he agreed to this interview in May 2013. We're now sitting here on Saturday, the 7th of June, 2014. I'm absolutely delighted to have him on the show today. Welcome, Adam Hills. <laughs> what was, where were we in May 2013? Uh, the Theatre. At the Thebi? That was at right, the Right, that was yeah. outside the Thebi Theatre. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And, uh... Well, look, if it helps, I haven't been back to Adelaide since. This is my first time back in Adelaide. Wonderful. <laughs> I'm glad you could make time for me. Oh, pleasure. Now, what's, what's been keeping you so busy? Oh, my goodness. Okay, since May. Let's see. So, in May, I was doing a tour, a stand-up tour, but I was also doing my talk show, Adam Hills Tonight, for the ABC. Um, the tour finished mid-July. So, basically, I, I toured up until the end of July... We made Adam Hills tonight until I think it was maybe July 28. Which yes, was... it was because you invited me to a recording. Right, so that was yeah. the final night. That mm. was on a Monday. We filmed it, we finished filming at 10 o'clock, and then I went home. I was picked up at home at midnight, taken to Melbourne Airport, and then I flew out at 2 a.m. to London, uh, landed in London on the Tuesday night and then we made our first last leg of the series the following night that's impressive <laughs> it was pretty full on um, and then that took me all up until the end of August mm-hmm. but meanwhile I did ten nights at the Edinburgh Festival and then when the last leg finished I then went on tour around the UK mm-hmm. uh, that took me up until the 23rd of November I flew home uh, four days after landing in Melbourne uh, my wife had our second baby. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, let's see. So then I was home up until about the middle of January, and then I went back to London and did another series of The Last Leg. Uh-huh. Uh, and then four series of a celebrity quiz called 15 to 1, um, and I just got back from London last night. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've certainly been very busy. Mm. Mm. And I, I say all that not to show off, but to let you know that I haven't just been slacking off <laughs> and avoiding your calls. I don't think anybody ever expected you would be. So how would you define your style of comedy? Um, I like to use the word conversational. Mm-hmm. There was an observational stand-up comedy was a really big thing for a while there. And then I thought, well, that's, I'm not really observing stuff. And then I thought, actually, if it's anything, I'd like to think my style was conversational, like a guy that's just come out on stage and started having a chat, mm-hmm. which is, I guess, what any good stand-up is. Um... But I like to be, you know, and have a chat with the audience and kind of and spontaneous at the same time. Yeah, definitely. So who inspired you, who inspired you to become a comedian? Um, to go all the way back, I think one of the first comedians I heard was a guy called Victor Borger. Mm. He was a Danish comedian. I, I know of him, yeah. I was on a Qantas flight with my family and I, it was the first time I'd heard the in-flight comedy channel. And I heard this guy being funny in front of an audience. And then I listened to all the other comedians on the channel. I couldn't tell you who the others were. But I was fascinated by the the rhythm of Mm -hmm. stand-up. And, of course, in those days, you would listen to the same program over and over and over. So I must have listened to the same comedians three or four times on that flight, at least. 
and just listening to the rhythms and the jokes and loving every bit of it. So he would have been the first. And then after that, Bill Cosby, um, his stand-up was very kind of very storytelling-y and very family-friendly. Uh, then Robin Williams, which was very improvised and spontaneous and bonkers. Yeah. And then Billy Connolly, which was very f- free-flowing and kind of um, going off on tangents. So probably when I look back, a com- combination of those three, family, the family friendliness of Bill Cosby, um, the kind of spontaneity of Robin Williams, and then the kind of free-flowing conversational style of Billy Connolly, that, those are probably the three that influenced me the most. Wonderful. Now, was there a show or an event that you saw as a turning point for your career? Uh, I, I think my career has been a, uh, uh, a whole bunch of gradual turns. <laughs> it's not been one turning point. It's been a really smooth curve with little points of um, little moments of if I go back from the very beginning uh, let's see sitting one night I was uh, a friend and I were the support acts for a hypnotist in Sydney and the season was cancelled halfway through so she and I Belinda was her name she and I went out one night and drank coffee and decided we should write for a radio show so we sat up all night, we got the early morning papers, we wrote jokes and just faxed them into a radio show, hoping for the best. Um, and it turned out, off the back of that, they employed us as part-time writers. Well, and there you go. we became writers after that. Uh, let's see. Then when I was in Adelaide, so I came to Adelaide and worked on radio here, and then the Adelaide Comedy Festival started up in 1997. And that was the first time I'd seen international comedians and really hung out with them and uh, people like Ian Stone and Boothby Graffo and Stuart Lee um, and Boothby Graffo in particular convinced me to go to Edinburgh and said um, if you go to Edinburgh he said even if, even if you die on your ass every night for a month you'll still be a better comedian at the end of it which was excellent advice so that was a little turning point the first time I decided to go to Edinburgh mm-hmm. and then a big one came about in my third Edinburgh festival when a woman came running up the stairs late to my show and I was just about to go on stage and she said, have I got time, have I got time to get a drink? I said, no, I'll get you one. You go in and I'll get, go and get you a drink. And so I came out with a drink on the, for her and turns out she was a reviewer. So I kind of incorporated her into the show and then I got a five-star review and then the rest of the season sold that out. Helps. So that was a little turning point. So there's been, you know, right up until 2012 when I was asked to host a show for the Paralympics for Channel 4. Um, and then originally it was going to be on like a cable channel at midnight and then they saw me do stand-up about the Paralympics and went, oh no, hang on, he's funny, maybe we should put it prime time and then it became a 10.30 show with two other guys which became The Last Leg, mm. which is now... Huge. Yeah, it's, we've signed up for another three more series in the UK. So That's it's, impressive. It's been all these little moments that have just added up, I think. Yeah. Now, I did tell my listeners that uh, I was talking to you, and I asked them if they had any questions, and I said, okay. pick one. And uh, I, I do love this one. Now, you did Spicks and Specs in Australia for seven years. Yes. When you got that gig, how much did you actually know about music? I knew a little bit. I knew a fair bit about music, actually. Um, I, not as much as me for Alan. But I, I quite liked music trivia. Uh, I had very specific areas of knowledge. Um, but I think that's why I was was hosting the show, because I was almost like I was translating what they knew. Like, mm. they knew so much obscure stuff. 
um, and it was almost like I was translating that for the people watching it. So I was kind of in the intermediary. So I knew enough about music uh, that I could hold my own, but certainly not as much as Miff or Alan. Did you learn over the, the seven years? You would think, wouldn't you? Mm. You would think after 270-odd episodes, uh, however many questions we asked, you would think I would have learnt a lot. But I'll be honest, um, most of it just went in and out. Most of it, I think because it, there was, I never really had to remember any of it. Mm. It was always on a card or on the auto queue, um, And all I had to do was basically read what was on the card and if someone said something that matched what was on the card, I said yes and moved on. <laughs> so I think, for me, so much of it came and went. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll still go to music trip quiz nights every now and again, but I'm certainly not... I used to... Do you know what? When Spix and Flex was on, I would go to music quiz nights, and uh, I would end up then walking out and phoning our researchers <laughs> and asking them a question. Oh, dear. Now, you are a stand-up comedian and a television host. Mm. Which do you prefer? Um, I prefer stand-up um, because it's it's more immediate mm. and there's a there's a real buzz and a real energy from it. However, having said that, the last leg because the last leg's live, we get that buzz. Um, and there are moments where Josh and Alex and I find ourselves ad libbing, mm. and we afterwards go, "Can you believe we ad libbed on live television?" Because that's that's there's no safety net there. When we we're filming Spicks and Specs or even some of the game shows I do in Britain. You know if you make a mistake, you can stop, you can start again, you can go back. But The Last Leg is completely... It's not live here because it's replayed... Like, we do it on a Friday night in London. Yeah. And it's played here on a Wednesday night. So, yeah, so there's a real, the real buzz that comes from that. But having said all that, I think I, I've just done a weekend of stand-up at the Kilkenny Comedy Festival. And um, that's the proper buzz. That's where I'm really kind of, you know, zinging. Absolutely. Now, with, with The Last Leg, it's live. Yes. So, have you ever encountered any any issues or need for that? Do you have that se- seven second delay, or you don't have any? No, problem? we're completely have you, live. Have you ever had any issues or, or complaints? Um, do you know what? I don't think we have. Considering our first ever episode, we were told there are two words we couldn't say: mm. one that begins with C, and one that has an M and an F in it. Mm. And Idris Elba was our first guest, and he managed to drop the M and the F word. Uh, but we just got away with it, I think, because. There's this thing in Britain called the Watershed, mm-hmm. which I think is 9 o'clock, and it's the time before which you can't swear at all on TV. Um, after 9 o'clock, you can swear a bit, but there's an hour of kind of uh, what they call the impressionable viewing time or something, where you, young people might still be watching. Okay. So you can drop the F-bomb, but just don't go too far. Mm. Um, and then after 10 o'clock, it's okay. Yeah. And I think we just got away with it because the show ran an extra five minutes over. Literally, it was like 10.01 and Idris dropped the M and then the F word. Um, but as far as I know, no complaints. Um, there were, after the Oscar Pistorius trial, uh, it, it all broke on the Thursday morning and then mm. we were on air the Friday night. So not the trial, when he was first charged. Um, we had an afternoon of meetings with lawyers who sat down and told us what you can say and what you can't say. As, and as it turned out, all of it was um, redundant anyway because there's no jury. Mm. It's, there's, there's no jury in South Africa, so there's no jury that could have even watched our show to be influenced by it. Um, but we spent a good couple of hours that day being told what we could and couldn't say. Um, but just before the show, one of the producers took me aside and very cleverly said to me, 
we have to go through all these things with you, but once you're on air, you're live and I can't stop you saying whatever you want. And it was a little... It's just a little hint that said, you can say whatever you want, basically. Yeah. So we've kind of... We've been given almost... Not free reign, but we've been basically been told... I think the, the, the channel like it when we say something that's edgy and contentious and mm-hmm. makes the show look live. Well, it's, uh, it became hugely successful. Did yes. you expect that at all? No. No. We... When we made it during the Paralympics, the only thing we thought was it, we aimed at being... Uh, looked at the way Roy and HG were looked at during the Olympics. We thought if we could create a show that became a bit of a cult hit like that, that'd be amazing. But we didn't even set out to. We just set out to make the show that we made, um, never thinking it would be recommissioned. Which is probably why it worked, because we weren't chasing our tails and wondering what the network liked and what they didn't like. We just made the show we made. And then... At the end of it all, the, the, the Channel 4 said, right, we want, we want to do more. We want it to be a weekly topical show. And Josh and Alex and I went out to lunch and basically said, it's not going to work without the Paralympics. And we all agreed. And then we just started chatting for an hour and we cracked each other up for an hour. And then suddenly went, hang on, maybe it will work. We make each other laugh. That's all we have to do. So that's kind of... The strength of the show is really down to the, the chemistry between Josh, Alex and I. And in fact, after that lunch, I remember saying to them, look... There's only one other time I've seen chemistry like this between three myself and two other people, and that was Alan and Miff on Specs and Specs. Mm. I said, that doesn't come along very often, so when you see it, I think you should run with it and hope for the best. Yeah, and when can, uh, when can viewers expect to see The Last Leg Return? Well, we've got five more episodes in August, partly, mm-hmm. mainly because the, the Channel 4 couldn't find eight weeks free. <laughs> they looked at the schedule and went, oh one of our biggest shows and we don't have room for it. So we've got five weeks in August and then I think we've got two more series next year. Wonderful. Now, you've obviously successfully broken into the UK market, but you come from Australia. How did you go about making that move? It was as simple as, um, in 1997, signing up to do the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And uh, I did have a friend here in Adelaide who was working at a venue called the Gilded Balloon in Edinburgh, um, who at least gave me a contact and a reference. Yeah. But I sent all my stuff off and they gave me a venue. And I, well, what is now known as, pr- I produced myself. Basically, I, I paid to get myself over there. I found accommodation. Um, I was doing another show with an, another Adelaide comic called Dave Williams. So I was doing my show from, if I remember correctly, 5.15 to 6.15. And then I'd either get in a taxi or I'd walk for about half an hour <laughs> to the other venue. And I think we were on at 7.00. <laughs> I would do 5.15 to 6.15 and then he and I would do a two-hander from 7 till 8. Um, and that was it. I just I did Edinburgh. And, and there was also, look, to be fair, there, in that 97 Adelaide Comedy Festival, a guy called Dave Johns was a Newcastle comedian and he got me a couple of gigs, a couple of open mic spots at the Glee Club in Birmingham and then I think maybe the Hyena in Newcastle. So that helped a little bit. And then every year I would go back and do Edinburgh again. And then uh, a friend of mine, the friend that used to live in Adelaide, Carolyn Lee was her name, started up a comedy agency in Dublin. So then I lived in Dublin for two years and just went over there and did gigs. Um, So I was kind of considered weirdly part of the Irish comedy scene there for a while. In in fact, in one year in in Edinburgh, there was a show called The Best of Irish, and I was was one of them. Um, People like, you know, Dara O'Brien and Jason Byrne and me um, were considered the best of Irish. 
So I lived in Dublin for two years and kind of worked all the Dublin clubs and then I was starting to get more and more work in the UK. So then I moved over to London. So I just I kind of just followed the work, really. And do you think you made the right decision now? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I, a manager once said to me, always go where the work is. And if the work's pulling you somewhere, then just follow. And then if, if more work springs up somewhere else, then follow that. I mean, now, yeah. a lot of comedians make the move from Australia to LA, but you chose London. And yeah. I just want, I, I want to know why. I know for my, myself as a performer, London is, that's, that's the goal. Right. But for a comedian, where did, when, when did you go? London, LA, London? Um, well, I mean, in, in 97, there weren't really that many Aussie actors in Hollywood. Mm. Um, and certainly no Australian comedians. Um, there aren't even that many comedians over there now, really. But certainly not in 1997. Um, I guess it really was just someone saying to me, go to Edinburgh, do the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. It's the biggest arts festival in the world. It is. I mean, I always had plans to go to LA, um, but just Edinburgh came up first, and then, you know, the work led me to London. And London is, London is a better stand-up circuit, I reckon, than LA. New York's great, but I think if you really want to do stand-up, it's either New York or, or London. Mm-hmm. Um, London's a great stand-up circuit. It's amazing the amount of clubs that there are there, and the UK generally. So it's kind of... I've still got plans to go to LA, and I still keep going over there every now and again and signing up. I've signed up with an agent, and they want me to, to spend more time in LA. They want me to go over and spend, like, six months there. But... And, in fact, just before the last leg took off, I had planned... I had almost locked in a month at the Comedy Cellar in New York and they were basically going to let me be the resident compare for a month because uh, I thought, you know, 28 nights in a row in New York at the Comedy Cellar would be ideal. And then the last leg took off and they wanted to make a series in London so I had to kind of put that off. So it's that thing. I was in London for ages chipping away and chipping away and then Spicks and Specs came up. And in order to come back and do that, I kind of had to put my London career on hold and I missed out on a lot of opportunities while doing Spicks and Specs. And now uh, I'm in London and I'm missing out on opportunities in LA. So I just figure, you know, I'll just keep building up what there's I do. There's only one of you and there's three locations. <laughs> exactly. And the thing is, um, you know, th- there aren't a lot of comedians hosting TV shows in the, in the States. Mm. There's the late night talk shows, but they're pretty much sewn up. So whereas in England there are a lot of panel shows... Um, and, and the best panel shows. Now, because you've been so busy in the UK, you haven't made an Australian TV program yet. Mm-hmm. Any plans to do so in the next couple of years? Um, maybe next year. Maybe next year. Uh, at the moment, I'm talking with Channel 4. They want to sign me up until the end of next year, um, which is 2015. And then 2016 is the Rio Paralympics, so I'd yeah. imagine we'll be doing something there as well. Um, I decided to have a break this year because... Well, a number of reasons... Having to, a, a little baby as well as a four-year-old, I thought, well, I want to spend time with them while I can. Um, I was in danger of getting burnt out. Just going, I mean, says the man who just flew in last night from London and is doing two spots tonight on stage. Um, but I was in danger of getting burnt out. And hosting my own show was kind of doing my head in, trying to be the boss and, of a show and consider everyone else's opinion. And and it's got your name on it, so you've got to be the controller. Exactly. And it's, it was a lot of work, and I just thought... You know, I, I knew I had two series of The Last Leg Up My Sleeve um, to make in the UK, and I thought, if I just keep going backwards and forwards and, be and not stop it... Yeah, I will be. So, um, so I'm having... I've got another five weeks off now, and then I'm going to have to think about that and maybe come up with a new TV show, for maybe for Australian television next year.
That would certainly be very nice. Maybe. <laughs> now, you've been in the industry for a while. How yeah. have you seen it change and develop? Um, when I started doing stand-up, the open mic nights in Sydney were a Wednesday night at the Sydney Comedy Store, mm-hmm. and they had a maximum of ten people on, and there were some nights where they couldn't get six. You know, you were really... I never missed out. I remember one night missing out on a slot, like turning up, and names went into a hat, and there were maybe 10 slots and there were 15 people. And I was gutted. I was absolutely gutted. I was only 19. It was, I lived for it. And um, I remember going out to get some dinner and thinking, oh, I'll come back and watch the show. And when I came back, I think the manager just felt sorry for me and she went, go on, go on, you can have a spot. So, so I never missed out on a spot. Whenever, every time I turned up, I always ended up on stage. I think now the Sydney Comedy Store, there might be like a three-month wait to, to do an open mic spot. So everyone wants to be a comedian now. Mm. Back then, comedians weren't really doing radio shows. Um, whereas now, you know, virtually every comedian on breakfast... Every person on breakfast radio is a comedian, whether it's in Melbourne, you've got Dave Hughes has just finished up, uh, Limo, Dave Thornton, um, I'm trying to think who the other guys are, Michelle Laurie is doing breakfast radio now. Um... So there's a whole stack of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's changed. I think comedy's become more of a, a viable business for the people at the top. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when I started out, we certainly did it for the love of it. <laughs> Whereas now I think people get into it thinking they're going to have a career. And they may well, but it was, that wasn't a, necessarily a, a, an option in, you know, 99 or 89 when I started. Mm. So if you could have any project you wanted, what would it be? The last league comes pretty close, I've got to say. It is a dream job um, to to do comedy and feel like... This is going to sound ridiculous. Feel like you're actually saying something with a point. Mm. Like, we never... We, we try not to just make jokes about the news. We try and make sure that we're giving opinions or we're actually saying something that people can take away from the show. Um, or making sense of a, of a weird... St- of a horrible story in the news sometimes. Um, so the last league... And, it, and it's live... So that real zing is there. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty close to my dream job. Uh, I'd like to do a show that also involves the audience mm-hmm. and is based around the audience because that's what I do in stand-up. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure how to make that happen or how to pitch that to, to anyone that would go with it. Um, so that would probably be my dream, would be, a, would be a series based around the audience. Okay. Now, you do a lot of stand-up comedy, so yep. I'm sure you would have encountered some interesting hecklers along the way. What's been the weirdest or most interesting experience with a heckler? Wow. Um, first one comes to mind is, was at the London Comedy Store a few years back, and it was a charity night from mm. memory, I think. Maybe it was just a regular Saturday night. can't quite remember. Anyway, uh, I was talking about sign language, and I had a routine about how sign language I find to be a bit racist. Um, which I don't, but some... Well, it, it almost is, actually. Some of it's a bit offensive because it's, it's the signs for different countries can be a little bit basic mm. and uh, stereotyped or clichéd. And I started talking about this, and the guy down the front just went, Oi, oi, oi. Oh, yeah, he said, my sister's deaf, so just watch it. And I went, oh, I'm not making fun of deaf people at all. So he I don't care, mate, don't care. It's me dad here. He's gone through a lot having a deaf daughter. You leave it out. I went, well, I'm not going to stop my routine because I know it's not offensive. I work with a lot of deaf people. 
<laughs> which is why I'm, mate, I'm warning you, I'm bloody warning, I'll come up and thump you. And it was really quite aggressive. And then the, the audience started to turn on him, which made it worse, because then I knew that would rile him up. So, you know, my first thought was to drop the microphone and just go, come on, give it your best shot. <laughs> uh, my second thought was to drop the microphone and just walk off and go, fine, if you don't want me here, I don't need to be here. And then I kept thinking, no, come on, you've, you know, you've got to do something positive with this, you've got to turn it around. So I basically just managed to say to him, look, I know what I'm about to say is not offensive and I'm not making fun of deaf people. Um, tell you what, how about you, li- you hear me out and when I get to the end of it, if you still think I'm being offensive, then by all means you can say whatever you want, but how about you just let me get to the end? And apparently he sat there with his arms folded the whole way through, as did his dad, and I was told towards the end his dad unfolded his arms and started to kind of clock what I was saying, mm. and he was fine with it. But just towards the end of my act, this guy just got up, looked at me, and just went, you're a prick, mate, and went off to the bar. And I was like, oh, I almost made this work. And then I did. I just turned it around and did the punchline, and the audience were fine. But it was, yeah. it was such. It was one of those moments where, in my head, I had to work out what was going on with the guy. Like, why is he heckling me? And I thought, okay, well, he's feeling very protective of his sister, probably a younger sister who's deaf, who's probably copped a lot of abuse in her life. Dad's there. He's gone through a lot, and they, he's worried that I'm going to be offensive to deaf people, and then his dad's going to kick off. And blah, blah, blah. so I had to kind of. You know, decode that in my head while still continuing your routine. Well, and trying to keep some good energy in the room because mm. if it kicked off, if it all kicked off, then it's ruined the night for everyone. Yeah. So, it's yeah. <laughs> well, what's the most outrageous thing you've done as a comedian? I'm going to say uh, it's a festival in Suffolk called Latitude Festival, and the comedy tent seats about a thousand people. Yeah, and the comedy goes all day usually starts about midday and ends up about six o'clock at night and I think I was I the last act on I might have been the last act on this particular day and I had noticed earlier in the day on each side of the stage were two enormous and I say enormous probably 12 foot high like polystyrene pink poodles which I later found out was there was a gay night in the tent later on so that's why they were there and it was all part of the set decoration the stage decoration um and I looked at them and thought, oh, I wish I had the balls to crowd surf them and do something bonkers with them. And, but then I, no, I'll never, I'll never have the guts to do that. And then, of course, you get on stage, you get a bit of, you know, adrenaline. adrenaline and suddenly I was crowd surfing. I had a crowd surfing race, <laughs> these enormous 12 foot high pink poodles up to the back of the tent and then back to the stage again. And, um,. I still get people occasionally that will stop me in the street and go, are you the pink poodle guy? <laughs> yeah, that's me. <laughs> now, as you mentioned, you did have a chat show on the ABC. Yep. Who was the most interesting person you ever talked to? Um, I mean, most people... I mean, everyone was fascinating. Probably the most interesting lineup I had was Simon, a comedian called Simon Amstel next to Henry Rollins, uh, kind of metal... Uh, dirty metal singer um, next to Bindi Irwin was <laughs> the three most unlikely people to sit next to each other and we thought that it might create a bit of maybe a bit of frisson but also a, we thought there might be a lovely bonding between all three of them um, but it didn't quite work out that way Henry Rollins didn't really know what to make of Bindi and Terry Irwin so he just shied away from them and just looked 
you know, angrily into the crowd. Um, Simon Amstel was good, um, but it, it was a really weird... By the end of the show, I really felt like I'd been alive for two hours because anything could have happened. Um, so that was probably the most interesting combination of people we had. Mm. Now, the, uh, in addition to everything else you've been doing, at the end of the last year, you released a DVD of your stand-up show, Happyism. Yes. Now, it's a great show, and you tell a lot of personal stories. So do you consider your comedy your autobiography? Yeah, probably. In much the same way that I've heard musicians, certain musicians say, you know, don't, don't ask me anything in an interview. Uh, don't ask me questions in an interview. Everything I need to say is in my music. So it's probably true of me. Everything I really want to say is in my stand-up comedy. Um, yeah, I mean, there's probably an autobiography to be written. I keep being asked about it every now and again. Um, and there are certainly s- stories from behind the scenes in comedy. Probably that's... If I wrote an autobiography, it would be more about what goes on behind the scenes. Because everything else that's personal in my life, as you say, I've put up on stage. Um, but all the stuff, you know, no one wants to guy on stage going, oh, last week, last week I did this gig. Um, the, the audience are like, well, we're here now. How about, how about tonight's show? Um, so, yeah, it probably is. And that's the... And when you are being quite autobiographical, it's hard to come up with what to say next. Because it has to be something that you genuinely feeling and genuinely want to say. So, um, for me now, I'll do a new solo show every two years because it takes me six months to work a new show up to scratch uh, or to work it up to par and then you tour it for probably eight or nine months and then, you know, you need to have a few months off mm. before you start it again. So. so you're back on the circuit then next year? I'd say so. I've already started putting... T- I've got ideas for a new show... Uh, I've probably got about seven minutes worth of material. <laughs> but my plan for the rest of the year now will be to go back to London August, September, October. Mm. Um, and I'll say to my manager, right, just book me a whole bunch of club gigs, unannounced and unadvertised and not closing the show where the pressure is. And I can just turn up, go on in the middle, no one knows I'm going to be there, I'll do my 20 minutes, I'll go home, take notes, and then keep doing that. Yeah, until keep developing I- it. Yeah, pretty much. So what's been your favourite story to tell? My favourite story to tell? Mm. Uh, probably the night that... Um, I've never really told this on stage, though, to be honest, that my wife and I got to go to movie night at the Playboy Mansion. <laughs> As you do. And it was this long story that started, actually, at the Adelaide Fringe a few years ago when we met Michael Feinstein, who's an American cabaret singer. And he said, if you're ever in Hollywood, look us up. So later that year, we were in LA, we called him and he said, I'm going out of town tomorrow, why don't you come around for drinks tonight? So we went around to his house for drinks uh, and he and his husband were there and a woman called Patricia Ward Kelly, who was Gene Kelly's late wife. Uh, She was quite young and he was quite old when they got married, so um, she's now in her 50s. We went out drinking, we became friends with Patricia... She took us to her place for dinner, showed us the original filming script of Singing in the Rain with Gene Kelly's handwritten choreography on it. Um, and then said, and then we took her out to dinner, and then she said, I've got an open invite to the Playboy Mansion every Friday night. Hef plays one of his favourite movies. Um, do you want to come along? So we went to the Playboy Mansion and got our photos taken on the way in and walked around the grounds and had dinner and got a photo with Hugh Hefner, and then we went into a room with about 40 other people. 
and sat down on couches with popcorn while Hugh Hefner got up in his robe and introduced this, I don't know, 1940s movie called Nightmare Alley. We all sat around and watched it. And then afterwards he gave us a tour of his office. Um, and then we ended up in the games room playing pinball until about midnight <laughs> with this Patricia and a journalist and my wife and I. Uh, and then we went back later that week because Hef has a private zoo and we took our daughter who at that point was about oh maybe not even two years old <laughs> we walked around the Playboy Mansion with a, with a toddler <laughs> well I don't think there are many people that can lay claim to that <laughs> so uh, and we've now got an open invite anytime we're back in LA we can go to the Playboy Mansion take Vivi along and uh, we'll take both our daughters along now and show them the private zoo <laughs> Well, there you go. Now, throughout throughout the interview, you've sort of given us a scattering of what you're doing uh, in the next while. Can you sort of just sum it up for our listeners who just want to know where they can see you? Uh, mainly on TV. It's The Last Leg. Uh, I'm assuming it'll be on the ABC in August. Um, then I go back to the UK, make some more TV uh, September, October. Uh, there'll be more Last Leg, probably... January, February, March of 2015, and then again August, September of 2015. Um, and I dare say there will probably be a live stand-up tour in 2015, probably April, May, June, July around Australia. Wonderful. I'll be sure to come and say hello again. <laughs> Please <you> do. <laughs> now, finally, what advice would you offer to anyone looking to become a comedian? Um, the same advice that Billy Connolly gave to me when I met him backstage at the Adelaide Festival Theatre one year, when he found out I was a stand-up, he just went, oh, just do it. Just never stop doing it. You'll hate it, but you'll love it. Just keep doing it. And he's exactly right. It's the best. Every time you go on stage, you learn. And if you die on stage, get back up there, because we've all died. And the more you do it, the better your deaths become. You never stop dying, but, you know... You, they, they become better and your good gigs become better as well so the more you do it and the more you write um, and that's the other thing if you keep doing it you keep doing the same act over and over and over you'll never go anywhere you've got to come up with new stuff as long as you keep doing it and keep coming up with new stuff you'll always get better and you'll all, you'll you can't not learn and you can't not improve. Mm. Well, thank you very much for your wise words. My pleasure. Now, our listeners can get your DVDs in Australia, the UK. Yes. You're in the US. Have you got US DVDs? No, they're not out in the US yet. So it's only Australia and the UK as far as I know. Although, I mean, if you can play them, you can order them on, yeah. from Amazon in Australia or whatever. And, Wonderful. Or and you're back on our screens later this year. Lastly, but later this year and maybe something else next year. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Pleasure. That was Adam Hills talking to me earlier this year. Now, thanks to Palace Nova Cinemas, I'll be checking out the latest movie releases. Firstly, West End Theatre Live's Ghosts. The multi-award-winning production of Ghosts hit screens a couple of weekends back, and it was truly haunting. I gave it four stars, and for the full review, to see what I liked and didn't like about it, head over to the website and the movie review section. The next film I had a look at was Jersey Boys. Now, Clint Eastwood's Jersey Boys did fall a little short of the mark. He had a great cast, great music, and a great storyline, but there was something missing, and I gave it three and a half stars. 
The final movie I'll be talking about today is the recent release, Calvary. And Brendan Gleeson stars in this thought-provoking film about life and death. I'm going to give this one four and a half stars, and I do really encourage you to see this one. So check out my full review online at www.preacherspodcast.net, and then the movie review section. And all those reviews are courtesy of Palace Nova Cinemas. Now, Roger has also released some fantastic DVDs over the past couple of months, including Nebraska, Winter's Tale, Three Days to Kill, and with upcoming releases like Atlantis Season 1, Last Tango in Halifax Season 2, and a whole lot more. The DVD that I want to highlight today is Three Days to Kill. This is a fun, enjoyable, zoning out kind of a movie. It is an action film, and it doesn't have the strongest of storylines, but it's still a great deal of fun. So I'd encourage any fans of action films uh, who enjoy that escapism kind of movie to sit back and watch this one. And I'll be back next month with another interview, this time with musical theatre star Todd McKenney. And also I'll have some more reviews from latest cinematic releases and of Roadshow DVDs. I've been your host, Benjamin Man McKay, and this is Benjamin Man McKay's Talk To Me. Don't forget to check out all our sponsors, Palace Nova Cinemas, Roadshow Entertainment, Mad Zombie Collectibles, and you can also find us on social media, facebook.com slash preacherspodcast, and also on Twitter. This has been a Preachers Podcast online and on stage production. I'm your host, Benjamin Man McKay. See you next time. Thank you.